Hello and welcome. We are the Ladies of Strange. I'm Ashley. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Rebecca. Thank you for joining us each week as we discuss the history, mystery, and theory of all things questionable, odd, and eerie. We did it! Happy September. Happy September. I'm dying. (laughs) (laughs) We're fine, guys. Tiffany's little summer light is fading out on us. It is. Whenever it fades, I just dissolve into delirium. And that's where I'm at, folks. How's it going? Great. (laughs) Happy fall, (laughs) y'all. As she cries and sips her drink. Seasonal depression is real, y'all. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's all good now. (laughs) So what are we learning about this week? (laughs) Ashley, bring it on up for us, because I know you don't bring depressing topics. Mm, I'll let you decide. All right. Clyde Chestnut Barrow was born on October 1st, 1910 in Ellis County, Texas, which is just south of Dallas. He was the fifth of seven children to Henry Basil Barrow. (laughs) Tiffany's looking at our map for confirmation of where Texas is (laughs) in the United States. Oh, thank you. So look at this map. (laughs) Um, He was the fifth of seven children to Henry Basil Barrow. I just realized his dad's middle name is Basil and his is Chestnut. I think they had a thing for food. And um, his mother, Cumi Talithia Walker. As a boy born into a poor family, Clyde's great love was music. He loved to sing and play an old guitar on the farm. He taught himself how to play the saxophone, and it seemed as if he might pursue a career in music. That's impressive to do. Right? The saxophone of all things? Eh. Wow. Becca's like, it's no violin, but... It's one of the easier instruments to learn. You could ask any orchestra. I'm going to shut up before we get the hate mail. Please continue, Ashley. Okay, you need to find a saxophone and play me Careless Whisper right now. Oh, my dad plays a saxophone. You still want that to happen? I do want you to do that. Oh, that means our dad has a saxophone. Next time you're at your parents, I need a video of you playing Careless Whisper. No, thanks. Um, The Barrow family moved to Dallas in the early 1920s, and they spent their first months living under their wagon until they had enough money to buy a tent. Barrow's first arrest was in late 1926 at the age of 17. After running when the police confronted him over a rental car that he had failed to return on time. Which, rental cars in the 20s? Wait, in 26 (laughs) and he was born in 10? Yes. So he was 16. 16. Okay. Uh, No, because it was late 1920s. So he's probably almost 17. Almost. Okay. Sorry. That's fine. Around the age of 17. Stop with your number logic. Rental car. Yeah. After running when the police confronted him over a rental car that he had failed to return. His second arrest was with his brother, Marvin, this time for possession of stolen goods. Was it like a car? (laughs) (laughs) Goods, not property. But do you guys want to take a guess on what the stolen goods were? Penny candy. Chestnuts and basil. (laughs) (laughs) What? Turkeys. <laughs> Wait, like live turkeys? Like live turkeys. They just kidnap some live turkeys. <laughs> okay. So what I'm seeing so far Mother Clucker. <laughs> I do not condone his behavior, but you know, there are worse things you could do. I mean living I'm sure we'll hear a, about a it. Poor boy they on just a farm. gobbled them up. <laughs> <laughs> um I lost my spot. Okay. Despite having legitimate jobs during the period from 1927 through 1929, he also cracked safes, robbed stores, and stole cars. Oh, Jesus. NBD. NBD. It was the 20s. They were, the rules weren't invented yet. No. Mm-mm. 
So, moving back in time a little bit, Bonnie Elizabeth Parker. I know where this is going. <gasps> I got it now. <laughs> I'm there. Oh, oh, I'm excited, Ashley. Was born on October 1st, 1910 in Rowena, Texas, the second of three children. Her father, Charles Parker, was a bricklayer and died when Bonnie was four. Her father's death caused her mother, Emma, to move her family back to her parents' home in Cement City, which was an industrial suburb in West Dallas, where she worked as a seamstress. Growing up, Bonnie was an honorable student and she excelled in writing. She even won a county league contest in literary arts. In her second year of high school, she met Roy Roy Thornton. I went a little country there. In her second year of high school, she met Roy Thornton. The couple dropped out of school and were married on September 25th, 1926, six days before her 16th birthday. Ugh. Wow. I mean, in 1926, that's not crazy. Ew. That first time, I was like 15 and married. I just... Trying to remember what I was doing when I was 15. At 15, I was crying because my mom wouldn't drop me off at the Panic at the Disco concert. I think I was reading Harry Potter for the first time. (laughs) Uh, We had very different childhoods. (laughs) 10th grade, I was... At 15? Yeah. I have an August birthday, so my birthday is before the Oh, that's right. 15, I was pining over boys and playing Barbie still with Ashley. (laughs) And what are you doing today? Pining over after boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> yup. Um, so her marriage to Roy was partnered by his frequent absence and brushes with the law, and it proved to be short-lived. They never officially divorced, but their paths never crossed again after January 1929. So she's leaving one outlaw to get up with another. Oh, buddy. Um, At the end of her marriage, Parker moved back in with her mother and worked as a waitress in Dallas, Texas. Bonnie and Clyde, one of the world's most iconic duos, would meet in Dallas, Texas in January of 1930. Mm -hmm. Soon after, Clyde was arrested for burglary and sent to jail. He was sent to the East Ham Prison Farm in April of 1930 at the age of 21. He escaped from the prison farm Mm -hmm. shortly. 1921? 1930 at the age of 21. But he was born in 1910. Did you get his birth year right? Yes. That's how math works. 10 plus 21 is 31. No, it was in 1930. So he should have been 20, not 21. Did she not? I said 21. And she said 17 earlier when it was supposed to be 16. There are very few things I'm good at, and math is one of them. So I stand corrected. It was 1909. Okay, that makes more sense. So I'm going to scroll back up here, update that. Well, then, that is why we keep Tiffany around, ladies and gentlemen, because Lord knows her notes won't be done, but she will critique <laughs> the shit out of yours to make sure you've got your numbers right. Today's episode is brought to you by salt. <laughs> Salt and burn. 1,000%. All right. Well, now that we have that corrected, he was born in 1909. I stand corrected. Thank you, Tiffany. And he was sent to East Ham Prison Farm in April 1930 at the age of 21. Do my numbers work for you now? Those numbers are perfect. Thank Thank you. you. He escaped from the prison farm shortly after his incarceration using a weapon that Bonnie smuggled to him. However, he was recaptured shortly after and sent back to prison. Clyde was repeatedly sexually assaulted while in prison. He retaliated by attacking and killing his tormentor with a lead pipe crushing his skull. Yeah, that's one way to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
This would be documented as his first killing, even though another inmate who was serving a life sentence claimed responsibility. So we had a friend. Yeah, bros looking after bros. <laughs> kings lifting other kings. <laughs> yes, king. Yes, king. Go out and loot because I cannot. This would be documented as his first killing. I already read that because we said, yes, king. Huzzah. In order to avoid hard labor in the fields, Clyde purposely had two of his toes chopped off. <gasps> It's not confirmed if he did this himself or if he convinced another inmate to do it. No. However, he would be set free six days after his intentional injury. Without his knowing, his mother had successfully petitioned for his release. He was paroled from East Ham on February 2nd, 1932. Gotta get the numbers right. Yes. 32. Fellow inmate Ralph Foltz said that he watched Clyde, quote, change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake while he was incarcerated. Bonnie, Clyde, and Foltz began a series of robberies, primarily of stores and gas stations. Their goal was to collect enough money and firepower to launch a raid against the East Ham prison. On April 19th, 1932, Bonnie and Foltz were captured in a failed hardware store burglary where they intended to steal firearms. Bonnie would be released from jail in a few months after a grand jury failed to indict her. Foltz, however, was tried, convicted, and served time. On August 5th, 1932, Clyde, Raymond, Hamilton, and Ross Dreyer were drinking moonshine at a dance in Oklahoma when Sheriff C.G. Maxwell and Deputy Moore approached them in a parking lot. Clyde and Hamilton opened fire, killing Moore and gravely wounded Maxwell. No. Bad. Don't do that. Bad. (laughs) I don't like that. No, sir. Um, On Christmas Eve, the group was joined by a childhood friend of the Barrow family, W.D. Jones, who joined them at the age of 16, and the three of them left Dallas that night. I just like these ages baffle me. Again, at 16, I was like, Mom, I need to go to see Green Day. 16, we were finally parting ways with our Barbies and crying about it. Definitely not murdering cops, but you know, potato, potato. I hope not. (laughs) Yeah, no, we were not. No. The next day, Jones and Barrow murdered Doyle Johnson, a young family man while stealing his car in Temple. Barrow killed Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis on January 6th when he, Parker, and Jones wandered into a police trap that was set for another criminal. On March 22nd, Clyde's brother Buck was granted a full pardon and released from prison. He and his wife Planch set up house with Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones in a temporary hideout in Joplin, Missouri. The group ran loud, alcohol-fueled card games late into the night in the quiet neighborhood. Blanche recalled that they, quote, bought a case of beer a day. Oh, sounds like an old roommate of ours. (laughs) Oh, no shade, all truth. Between the five of them, they went through a case of beer on our hand, one of them. But you know, it's fine. Potato, tomato, it's fine. Older now. I was going to say growing up, but that's not the case. Um, The men came and went noisily at all hours, and Clyde accidentally fired a rifle in the apartment while trying to clean it. The rifle? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Just the apartment. (laughs) You know when you try to open a door and something's stuck and you're just like, I can't, kaboom. That's never happened to you? No. Oh, okay. I guess we all store our rifles differently. Um. (laughs) (laughs) No neighbors would go to the house, but one reported suspicion to the Joplin Police Department. The police assembled a five-man force in two cars on April 13th to confront what they suspected were bootleggers living in the apartment. 
The Barrow brothers and Jones opened fire, killing Detective Harry L. McGinnis outright and fatally wounding Constable J.W. Harriman. Parker opened fire as the others fled, forcing Highway Patrolman G.B. Kaler to duck behind a large oak tree. The bullet struck the tree and forced wooden splinters into the sergeant's face. Oh, no. That, I mean, that's what gets you. I will say it's better than the alternative, but yeah, no, that I, uh, my brain disassociates a lot of stuff, but splinters in the face, it just can't. It's like, where do we go from here? Oh, I don't uh, splinters know. Splinters in the face. <laughs> Does not compute. Parker got into the car with the others and they pulled Blanche from the street when she was while she was pursuing her dog Snowball, who had run away from the chaos. Can't I am Snowbell. <laughs> the surviving officers later testified that they had fired only 14 rounds in the conflict. One hit Jones on the side, one struck Clyde but was deflected by his suit coat button, and one grazed Buck after ricocheting off of a wall. The group escaped the police at Joplin but left behind most of their possessions at the apartment, including Buck's parole papers, a large arsenal of weapons, a handwritten poem by Bonnie, and a camera with several rolls of undeveloped film. Police developed the film at the Joplin Globe and found many photos of Barrow, Parker, and Jones posing and pointing weapons at one another. Are these the ones that you find, like the famous pictures you find when you Google them? Mm-hmm. Where they're all standing in front of the Ford and yes. like the one of Bonnie where she's got holding on to the gun and she's got the cigar in her mouth. Yes. And the one where she's pointing the weapon at uh, Clyde's stomach. Yep. Yeah. Safety first, kids. Don't yeah, do don't that. do any of that. No. <laughs> but also while we're on it, don't kill people. Just also that. putting that out there too. Or, you know, rob or just make smart choices, guys. Okay. Yeah. It's not that hard. The Globe sent the poem and the photos over to their family newswires, including a photo of Parker clenching a cigar in her teeth and a pistol in her hand. And the gang of criminals became front page news throughout America as the, quote, Barrow Gang. John Dillinger had leading man good looks and pretty boy Floyd became his nickname. But the Joplin photos introduced the criminal superstars with the most titillating trademark of all. Ooh. Illicit sex. <gasps> oh. Gasp. Jesus. What? The photos were very oh. sexual in nature. Oh, they were sliding into mailboxes? I don't know. <laughs> Be sliding the pigeons into are back. The pi- <laughs> mm, I think we're like in between pigeons and mailboxes. <laughs> no, this was after World War One. Notice when I know where that is. Um <laughs> They use pigeons in World War One, I, I think. I don't think they use them in World War Two. That's why I said said it that way. I'm pretty sure they used them in World War One. But they were with each other. Why would they send pigeons to spice up the relationship? I think they. Were- you know how spicy it'd be for like instead of sending a text across the room, it's a it's a pigeon. Not spicy at all. That sounds dirty. I don't want pigeons in my house. You don't know their life. I know their sphincters. Oh. What? <laughs> they're they're cloacas. They're cloacas. I I was about to ask a really stupid question. Back to Bonnie and Clyde. (laughs) Um, (laughs) For the next three months, the group's brain group. I got flustered. (laughs) The cloaca will do that to you. (laughs) The cloaca. That's so gross. For the next three months, uh, the group ranged from Texas as far north as Minnesota. In May, they tried to rob a bank in Lucerne, Indiana, and successfully robbed a bank in Okabana, Minnesota. Not going to lie, that map is coming in real handy right now. <laughs> I'm impressed you can read it from that far away. I got my new glasses on. 
Because I know you don't know where these states are actually located without reading them. Did not know where Missouri was, not going to lie. We haven't talked about Missouri. You did earlier. Because I remember <laughs> looking like where the fudge is Missouri. But we're good. They- uh, big shout out to all our patrons. <laughs> yes, thank you for the maps. Thank you for getting who, us a map. Who enables us to afford things like maps. domains and maps. <laughs> Next step, pride flags. <laughs> So they successfully robbed the bank in Minnesota. They kidnapped Dillard Darby and Sophia Stone in Rutson, Louisiana, while they were trying to steal Darby's car. This was one of several events between 1932 and 1934 where they would kidnap robbery victims and even police officers. They were known for releasing their hostages far from the point of kidnapping, sometimes with money to help them return home. Well, that's kind of nice. I mean, <laughs> don't get in that situation to begin with. But if you're going to be in it, at least you got some. How am I the Stockholm one? <laughs> How is that nice? Giving them money to get back home? Sometimes. I mean, I said it's. I'm not rooting for How them. How about just don't kidnap them? Just take their car and go. Look, I'm not a huge Bonnie and Clyde fan. Great story. Not a big fan of them. Go on. Take the money and run. But doesn't say anything about taking the people. But if you're going to take the people and give them cab fare on the way home, that's kind of the way to do it. I don't condone this at all. <clears throat> Stories of such encounters made headlines, as did their more violent episodes. The Barrow Gang did not hesitate to shoot anyone who got in their way, whether it was a police officer or an innocent civilian. Eventually, the cold-bloodedness of their murder opened the public's eye to the reality of their crime and would eventually lead to their end. The photos that were released entertained the public for a while, but the gang became desperate and discontent. With their new notoriety, their daily lives became more difficult as they tried to evade discovery. Restaurants and motels became less secure. They resorted to campfire cooking and bathing in cold streams. Jones was the driver when he and Barrow stole a car that belonged to Darby in late April, and he used that car to leave others. He would stay away for the months to come. Barrow did not see any warning signs at a bridge under construction when driving with Jones and Parker near Wellington, Texas, and the car flipped into a ravine. Sources disagree on whether there was a gasoline fire or if Parker was doused with acid from the car's battery under the floorboards, but she sustained third-degree burns to her right leg, so severe that the muscles contracted and caused the leg to, quote, draw up. Ah. Keep in mind, this is why they're on the run and can't really just go see a doctor. Jones observed, quote, she had been burned so badly, none of us thought she was going to live. The hide on her right leg was gone from her hip down to her ankle. I could see the bone. Parker could hardly walk. She either hopped on her good leg or was carried, carried, <laughs> carried, <laughs> carried by Barrow. She was carried. They got help from a nearby farm family. Then proceeded to kidnap the county sheriff, George Corey, and city marshal, Paul Hardy, leaving the two of them handcuffed and barbed-wired to a tree outside of Elric, Oklahoma. That seems like a bit much. I mean, I guess you gotta do what you gotta do. You use their handcuffs and then barbed-wire them to the tree. But you don't have to do that. Yeah, you just give them cab fare and send them home. I mean, that sounds (laughs) great, too. The three rendezvoused with Buck and Blanche, Clyde's brother and his wife, and hid in a tourist court near Fort Smith, Arkansas, where they would nurse Parker's burns. Buck and Jones had a failed robbery attempt and murdered town marshal Henry D. Humphrey in Alma, Arkansas. So everybody talks about how they were like robbers, bank robbers. Mm -hmm. I think they killed more people than they robbed banks. 
Yeah, I didn't realize how many people they had killed. I always assumed they were like just, just traveling around robbing banks. Yeah. I don't have this in my notes, but just kind of a interjection. They um total, I think, from robbing banks that they were able to successfully rob, they only got like fifteen hundred dollars. They got a lot of money. They did would rob like small local stores Mm -hmm. but the banks themselves they hardly ever had any success actually really robbing a bank so pretty interesting they are a shocker not what the media portrays them to be what Hmm. (laughs) yeah they're a lot different than i thought they were me too that's why this turned into as long of an episode as it is the criminals had to flee despite parker's grave condition In July of 1933, the gang checked into the Red Crown Tourist Court south of Platte City, Missouri. It consisted of two brick cabins that were joined by a garage, and the group rented both. This is one of their first stays that really raised attention of people around them. They were very careful up until this point as far as who stayed where and how they paid and everything. Blanche registered the party as three guests, but the owner, Neil Hauser, immediately saw five people getting out of the car. He noted that the driver backed into the garage, quote, gangster style. <laughs> what does that even <laughs> For mean? quick getaway. I guess people didn't back into garages very often. Was that just not a thing people did? I mean, the car, well, no, I guess not in the 30s. I was saying in the 50s. I was like, the cars were huge. Trying to turn those suckers around to get in your garage would be difficult. I guess not. I mean, but like, to be fair, I drive a hatchback and people are surprised when I can back my car into a space. So yeah, people don't back up very much anymore. But Blanche paid for their cabins with coins rather than bills. And she did the same later when buying five dinners and five beers. I guess they backed off the cases at this point. Fair. Um, The next day, Hauser noticed that his guest had taped newspapers over the windows of their cabins. Subtle. Right? Nothing to see here. Carry on. And again, the next morning, Blanche paid for their meals with coins. Her outfit of riding... (laughs) I thought this was so cute. Riding breeches. It was so funny. Attracted attention. They were not the typical attire for women in the area. And eyewitnesses would still remember her outfit up to 40 years later in interviews. The owner of the cabin told Captain William Baxter of the Highway Patrol about the strange group. Barrow and Jones went into town to purchase bandages, crackers, cheese, and atrophine sulfate to treat um, Bonnie's legs. The pharmacist contacted the sheriff who put the cabins under surveillance because they had been told they knew about the accident. So they'd kind of put out a be on the lookout. Yeah. For anyone that might be purchasing that. I guess that's a burn medication. Sheriff Coffee led a group of officers towards the cabins at 11 p.m. armed with Thompson submachine guns. The gang escaped when a bullet short-circuited the horn on the armored car and the police officers mistook it for a ceasefire. Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah. What are the odds? The gang had evaded the law once again, but Buck had sustained a bullet wound that blasted a large hole in his forehead and Uh, exposed his brain. He survived? Um, I don't know why that got me. (laughs) Brain juice. It was brain brain juice. (laughs) Probably a lot of it, yeah. Um, And Blanche was nearly blinded when glass fragments flew into both of her eyes. Don't like that either. That couple Mm. just had a bad day. The Barrow Gang camped at Dexfield Park, which is an abandoned amusement park near Dexter, Iowa. Buck was sometimes semi-conscious. He was able to talk and eat, but his massive head wound and loss of blood were so severe that the gentleman started digging a grave for him. Wow. 
Um, local residents noticed their bloody bandages and officers determined that the campers were the Barrow gang. Local police officers surrounded the group and the Barrow soon came under fire. Bonnie, Clyde, and Jones escaped on foot. Buck was shot in the back and he and Blanche were captured by officers. You Buck know. is still alive? Mm-hmm. And was trying to get away. Buck died of his head wound and pneumonia after surgery five days later at King's Daughters Hospital in Perry, Iowa. For the next six weeks, the three remaining gang members expanded their range and continued to commit armed robberies. They restocked their arsenal when Clyde and Jones robbed an armory in Platteville, Illinois on August 20th, requiring three rifles, handguns, and large quantities of ammunition. By September, the gang risked a run to Dallas to see their families for the first time in four months. Jones continued to Houston, where his mother lived, where he was arrested without incident, and on November 16th, he returned to Dallas. Clyde committed several robberies with small-time accomplices while his family and Bonnie's family attended to her medical needs. On November 22nd, they narrowly evaded arrest while trying to meet their family members near Sowers, Texas. After catching word of their arrival in town, local police officers posted in wait on local roads. As Barrow drove up, he sensed a trap and drove past his family's car, at which point the deputies stood up and opened fire. <laughs> the family members in the crossfire were not hit, but a bullet passed through the car, striking both the legs of Bonnie and Clyde. However, they escaped later that night. Bonnie's legs just can't catch a break. Both of them. He got his chopped off his toes Ugh. and then he just got shot again. So, on November 28th, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Bonnie and Clyde for the murder of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis in January. This would be Parker's first warrant for murder. On January 16th, 1934, Barrow orchestrated the escape of five prisoners, including Raymond Hamilton, who was serving sentences totaling more than 200 years from the East Ham State Prison. Two of the guards were shot by the escaping prisoners with automatic pistols, which had been previously concealed in a ditch by Barrow. The breakout generated negative publicity for Texas, and Barrow seemed to have achieved what historian Philip suggested was his overriding goal, revenge on the Texas Department of Corrections. Did you hear that part? I did get that. Good job. Um, This attack (laughs) attracted the full power of of the Texas. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of how Texas works. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not wrong. And it's capitalized. Because, you know, that, I know how to write that's notes. That's how grammar works for, you know, <laughs> places. <laughs> this attack attracted the full power of... Oh, no, that does make sense. The Texas and federal government. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> that's my best friend, everybody. She is beauty and she is grace. I will probably eat your face. This attack attracted the full power of the Texas and federal government to the manhunt for Bonnie and Clyde. The Texas Department of Corrections contacted retired Ranger Captain Frank, it's either Hamer or Hammer, and persuaded him to hunt down the Barrow Gang. He accepted the assignment as a Texas Highway Patrol officer and was secondly assigned as special investigator with specific task of taking down the Barrow Gang. Starting on February 10th, Hammer became the constant shadow of the dynamic duo living out of his car just a town or two behind them. On April 1st, 1934, Barrow and Melvin killed Highway Patrolman H.D. Murphy and Edward Bryant Wheeler near Grapevine, Texas. Melvin would later admit that he fired the first shot, assuming that when Barrow said, quote, get him, he wanted the officers killed. 
it was later believed that when he said get him they were trying to kidnap them um however after the first shot was fired barrow joined in firing at patrolman murphy during the spring season the grapevine killings were recounted in exaggerated detail all four Dallas newspapers jumped on the story told by the eyewitnesses, a farmer who claimed to have seen Parker laugh at the way that Murphy's head, quote, bounced like a rubber ball on the ground as wow. she shot him. Um, no? No, thank you. <laughs> no gracias? Um, the stories also claimed that the police found a cigar butt with, quote, tiny teeth marks that they believed to belong to Parker. And the eyewitness's ever-changing story was soon discredited, but the massive negative publicity increased the public plea for a capture of the Barrow Gang. In an attempt to calm the public cries, Highway Patrol leader offered a reward of $1,000 for the dead bodies of the Grapevine Slayers. They no longer wanted them captured, they wanted them dead. And the Texas Governor Ferguson added another 500 for each of the killers. Public hostility increased five days later when Barrow and Melvin murdered 60-year-old Constable William Campbell, a widower and father near Commerce, Oklahoma. They kidnapped Commerce Police Chief Percy Boyd, crossed the state line into Kansas, and let him go, giving him a clean shirt, a few dollars, and a request from Parker to tell the world that she did not smoke cigars. Um, don't they have pictures? Supposedly she was just holding it for the picture, and it was very unladylike. She said she smoked cigarettes, but she never smoked cigars. Because that's what you need to worry about with your reputation. Right? I just, I wonder about that because, okay. It kind of <laughs> does sound like something Tiffany would do. <laughs> well, except oh, before for- you go. I really like cigars. <laughs> no, that's not what I meant by that. I meant like, not that you would become, you know, a criminal on the run, but if you did and someone said something incorrect about you, oh, like yeah. you don't like leopard prints. Yeah, I'd be like, uh, just you'd be like, just uh, so no, nah, bitch. <laughs> I prefer leopard print, but I will wear zebra print as well. So, like the other people in the group would be like, just because it's in the thirties, like, listen here, Bob, you're gonna go and you're not gonna say a word about what you've seen here, or what you heard. And Tiffany's gonna be like, oh, and by the way, I do like leopard prints, <laughs> but I don't wear the real stuff. I just do the fake prints. Okay, if bye. you could just make that known, that would be great. Now, here's a clean shirt. Tell your <laughs> mom if, hi. I put a couple dollars in the bucket for you so you can get home safe, okay? Mm-hmm. 1,000%. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you should like them more than you do. No. No. <laughs> no, I draw. I have very few lines that I draw, but this is one they passed or crossed. Murder? Murder's a line? Yeah. Good. Lots of murder. <laughs> you must love not, my stories. Not murder. Lots, lots of, murder of murder is a line. <laughs> what what how many murders before we get to the line it was a while ago so <laughs> i just meant general but that's fine is this in relation to the story or do i need to go home just, just keep keep going. Going. you're fine let's see where we're at boyd was able to successfully identify both bonnie and clyde to authorities but he never learned melvin's name the resulting arrest warrant from the campbell murder specified clyde barrow bonnie parker and john doe for the first time, Bonnie was seen as a killer, actually pulling the trigger, just like Clyde. Whatever chance she had for clemency had been reduced. The Dallas Journal ran a cartoon on its editorial page showing an empty electric chair with a sign on it saying, Reserved, adding the words Clyde and Bonnie. Captain Frank Hammer had studied the gang's movements and learned their patterns, and learned that the pattern they had taken on was to exploit the, quote, state line rule, which prevented officers from pursuing a fugitive into another jurisdiction. So they would constantly be skirting yeah. the state lines to avoid police interaction. 
Um, he learned that their itinerary centered on family visits and they were due to see Melvin's family in Louisiana. Hammer put together a group of six Texas officers and two Louisiana officers. And on May 21st, the posse members from Texas were in Shreveport when they learned that Barrow and Parker were planning a visit to Bienville Parish that evening with Melvin. Shreveport. That's probably how you're supposed to say it. But everybody <laughs> I know in Louisiana calls it Shreveport. Shreveport. The full posse set up an ambush along the Louisiana State Highway 154 south of Giblins towards... Shreveport? Sales? S-A-I-L-E-S? Sure. Come sail away. Come sail away. Hinton recounted that their group was in place by 9 p.m. and waited the whole next day with no sign of the perpetrators. On the morning of May 23rd, the outlaw couple picked up two sandwiches for breakfast from Ma Canfield's Cafe in Giblin and began down Highway 154 to Melvin's father's house. At approximately 9.15 a.m. on May 23rd, the posse were still concealed in the bushes and almost ready to give up when they heard the rumble of the Ford V8 Barrow approaching at high speed. When Barrow fell into this trap, the lawman opened fire while the vehicle was still moving. Oakley fired first. He was one of the Texas officers, probably before any order to do so. Barrow was most likely killed instantly by Oakley's headshot, and Hinton reported hearing Parker scream. The officers fired about 130 rounds, Mm. emptying their weapons into the car. Many of Bonnie and Clyde's wounds would have been fatal, yet the two had survived several bullet wounds over the years in their confrontations with the law. According to statements made by Hinton and Alcorn, each of us six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistol. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car even got to us. Then we used the shotguns. There was smoke coming from the car and it looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, we'd emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards down the road. It almost turned over. We kept shooting at the car even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. Actual film footage taken by one of the deputies immediately after the ambush show 112 bullet holes in the vehicle around which one quarter struck the couple. I have a link to that video. We have a video of it? Of the footage of the car after the incident. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. They are still in the car if you decide to watch it. Just be mindful oh. of that. Gotcha. Okay. So their bodies are still in the car. I did not realize that when I initially pulled it up. So it was a little bit shocking. So just thanks for the heads up. Yes. The official coroner's report by parish coroner J.L. Wade listed 17 entrance wounds on Barrow's body and 26 on Parker's body, including several headshots on each and one that had snapped Barrow's spinal column. Undertaker C.F. Bailey had difficulty embalming the bodies because of all of the holes. Yeah, because they're strainers. Oh, yeah, pretty much. Oh, no. Pretty much. I don't know why you would even bother with embalming at that point, but I guess you had to do your job. Um, The deafened officers inspected the vehicle and removed carpet bags and guns that included sawed-off shotguns, automatic rifles, and pistols, as well as 1,500 rounds of ammunition. In the rear seat were license plate from Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, and Missouri. I see all of those on our map. (laughs) Oh, my God. Hammer stated, quote, I hated to bust the cap on a woman, especially when she was sitting down. However, if it wouldn't have been her, it would have been us. I mean, at least he cared. Mm, You couldn't even, like, finish that sentence. 
I hated to bust the cap on a woman. The woman was a murderer. Yeah. Especially when she was sitting down. Such a gentleman. Uh, Go that far. (laughs) Words of the death quickly got around when Hammer, Jordan, Oakley, and Hinton, so the um, Texas officers, Mm -hmm. drove into town to telephone their respective bosses. A crowd soon gathered around the spot. Um, The Louisiana officers were left to guard the bodies, but they lost control of the curious crowd. One woman cut off bloody locks of Parker's hair and pieces of her dress. Which would later be sold as souvenirs. That bitch is going to be haunted. (laughs) Hinton returned to find a man trying to cut off Barrow's trigger finger. No. No. Do you know how cool that would be? Not at all. Zero. No. Mm -mm. You are going to be so haunted. No. Let him. Clyde's trigger finger. No, you. No. No. What? No. (laughs) You broke Rebecca. (laughs) I thought it was kind of neat. It's so not. I can't put a finger on why, but it's oh, not. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly everyone had begun collecting. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a quote from the coroner when he arrived at the scene. Quote, nearly everyone had begun collecting souvenirs such as shell casings, slivers of glass from the shattered car windows, and bloody pieces of clothing from the garments of Bonnie and Clyde. One eager man had opened his pocket knife and was reaching into the car to cut Clyde's left ear. No. Here's the deal. Like, I don't care if they were douche nozzles. You don't disrespect dead bodies like that. They were super douche nozzles, but you just don't do that. Don't do that. You're going to get haunted. No, don't. (laughs) PSA from Tiffany's, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Please don't collect body parts. Uh, No, 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 don't. You're going to get like super haunted. It's it's way past my bedtime. Can you very uncomfortable? Can you tell who's been watching Supernatural? (laughs) Salt and burn. Yes. They had the car towed with the dead body still inside to the Conger Furniture Store and Funeral Parlor in downtown Arcadia, Louisiana. I'm sorry, what? Apparently, that was a pretty common practice. Really? So, like, estate sale and funeral parlor all in one? Some reason, furniture stores and funeral parlors went well. I guess maybe because, like, the people can sit on the furniture while they're having the service. I don't know. So, like, instead of, you know quarantine internet shopping it's grieving furniture shopping maybe i I don't know i do like to spend money when i'm sad but i read a couple articles about this and it said that that was pretty okay common practice to have those two things together but i was pretty uh enthralled with the topic at hand so i didn't really dive into that subsect of it the population of the small northwest louisiana town of arcadia reportedly swelled from 2000 to 12,000 within hours Beer that normally sold for 15 cents a bottle jumped to 25 cents, and they quickly ran out of sandwiches. You you like to furniture shop and eat sandwiches when you're mourning, I guess. Bonnie and Clyde wished to be buried side by side, but the Parker family would not allow it. Her mother wanted to grant her final wish to be brought home, but the mob surrounding the Parker house made that impossible. More than 20,000 people attended Bonnie Parker's funeral, and her family had difficulty reaching her gravesite. Dr. Alan Campbell recalled that flowers came from everywhere, including some cards allegedly from Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger. The largest floral tribute was sent by a group of Dallas City newsboys, thanking, basically, thanking them because the end of Bonnie and Clyde sold over 500,000 newspapers in Dallas alone. That's messed up. Yeah. 
Parker was buried in Fish Trap Cemetery, although she would be moved in 1945 to the new Crown Hill Cemetery in Dallas, Texas. Thousands of people gathered outside of both Dallas funeral homes, hoping for a chance to view their bodies. Clyde Barrow's private funeral was held at sunset on May 25th. He was buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas next to his brother Marvin. The Barrow brothers share a single granite marker with their names on it and an epitaph selected by Clyde, quote, gone but not forgotten. I really don't like Clyde, so I was not impressed by that. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. Could have been more creative. Here it is. Original. Almost 100 years later. Yeah. We're talking about him on the podcast. But so. I don't like him. The, the movies made them seem a lot nicer and I don't <laughs> like it. Did you watch like the PBS version? Uh, no, I just I watched a lot of different stuff growing up that I don't quite remember. I just remember they, they were like the cool couple. That it was, was romanticized, yeah, and they were out robbing banks and stealing yeah. from the rich and giving to the poor. Yeah, I don't like the actual or kidnapping them and giving them bus fare home. Okay, the bus fare I'm here for. That is, we're moving past the bus. Tiffany's fare. like, just give me snacks and put me on a bus. I'll be fine, right? The six men of the posse that brought down Bonnie and Clyde were each to receive one sixth share of the reward money. And they were promised that this, the total would be close to $26,000. However, they never received the promised amount and they were told to take whatever they wanted from the confiscated items in the car. Wow. Um, that's how you get haunted. Yeah. <laughs> Hamer appropriated the arsenal of stolen guns and ammunition, plus a box of fishing tackle, under the terms of his compensation package with the state of Texas. In July, Clyde's mother wrote to Hamer asking for the return of the guns. Quote, you don't never want to forget my boy was never tried in no court for murder and no one is guilty until proven guilty by some court. So I hope you will answer this letter and I also hope you return the items I'm asking for. And there was no record of any response to her. Alcorn claimed Barrow's saxophone from the car, but he would later donated it back to the Barrow family. And they also took other personal items such as Parker's clothing. The Parker family asked for them back, but they were refused, and the items would later be sold as souvenirs. Jordan did attempt to keep the death car for his own, but Ruth Warren of Topeka, Kansas, sued him because she was the owner of the car when Clyde stole it in April, or on April 29th. Jordan returned it to her in August of 1934. It was still covered with blood and human tissue. So basically, all of, like... Southwest, mid-U.S. is haunted with Bonnie and Clyde. Just like all of it. It's just like smattered across the country. Oh, God. Oh, no. No getting rid of that body because it's everywhere. Ugh. <laughs> um, in February of 1935, Dallas and federal authorities arrested and tried 20 family members and friends for aiding and abetting Bonnie and Clyde. This became known as the harboring trial. All 20 either pleaded guilty or were found guilty. So, as we know, the duo has been depicted in highly successful movies, including the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde, which helped promote a kind of, they called it gangster chic in fashion, especially in Europe and Japan. The historical marker was placed by the Bienville Parish Police at the site of the ambush and is now a very popular tourist attraction. And the Bonnie and Clyde Festival is held each May in Gippsland and features a reenactment of the fatal ambush. All these reenactments are bad. <laughs> oh no! At least the ones that I watched. 
they're not good. The former Ma Canfields Cafe in Gibsland has been converted to the Bonnie and Clyde Ambush Museum and is operated by LJ Boots, who is the son of Ted Henson, the last surviving member of the posse. Two years after Ted Henson's death in 1977, his account of the incident was published under the title Ambush, the real story of Bonnie and Clyde. The 1934 V8 Ford with its bullet holes from the 167 rounds fired by the lawman, was rented to a showman known as the Crime Doctor, who took the car on a tour around the country. At an event in Texas, two of the Texas Rangers who hunted down the killers, Frank Hamer and Manny Galt, showed up and hopped on stage. According to Ginn's book and other accounts, Hamer slapped the Crime Doctor in the face. <laughs> um, and now the car remains on public display at Whiskey Pete's Resort and Casino in Prim, Nevada, along with the shirt that Clyde was wearing when he was shot to death. Wow. That's not even, like, a classy thing to do. That's just rude and uncalled for. I don't like that. Well, if you want to be haunted by Bonnie and Clyde, you can go to Nevada or, you know, just across the Midwest. Just anywhere. And- I'm, I'm going to pass on that, but thank you so much for the offer. Absolutely. Anytime. I do want to go see the car. I think that would be fascinating. But yeah, so that is uh, the actual story of Bonnie and Clyde. Not quite as romantic and fun. And Yeah, I was expecting more like comedy chick flick style. <laughs> what? I was expecting more of a chick flick thing. I'm so happy you're such an optimist. So Tiffany watched the Hallmark version of Bonnie and Clyde. That's the problem. Yeah, I don't like these guys. Glad I could clear that up for you, right? <laughs> well, on that note of hi, 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 hi. Yes, thank you for presenting that. It was <laughs> it was good to know because I, it's definitely changed the way I feel about them. So, well, thank sorry you. for um, ruining your lifelong That's dream cool. of being a bandit duo. It's fine. <gasps> oh, does that change? That doesn't change how I feel about the My Chemical Romance song. Continue. Oh my gosh. Priorities. On that note. Remember, friends, everyone has something that they find odd. Probably best to do your research and find out maybe why it is or isn't. Fair. Um, if you have any questionable topics you'd like us to discuss, you can share them with us on any of our social medias. Links can be found on our website, theladiesestrange.com, or you can email them to us at theladiesestrange at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And if you think we're doing a great job and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash theladiesofstrange. Keep it strange, lovelies, and go listen to Demolition Lovers by My Chemical Romance. It's a good song. Well, there you go. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>